Military parents never miss a beat, and neither does the Johns Hopkins U.S. Family Health Plan. Built for every warrior in your family, with more than 40 years of service to military families, TRICARE Prime Benefits plus exclusive extras. Learn more at warriorsathome.com. Hello and welcome to Yahweh Reddit. This is a very special episode for us. I'm one of your hosts, Maggie. And I'm also one of your hosts, and my name is Laura. And we are going to be covering a one-off book, uh, A Study in Drowning by Ava Reed. That comes out this September. This is a sneak peek review look into the book. Yes, and... This was a really good book. Some of you oh, might, I had so much fun. Oh my gosh, it was such a blast. It's Some of you, it was honestly. I'll I'll say what we're all thinking. I had too much fun. <laughs> yeah, I I really like spooky books. Um, and right? you know, as we get into autumn, I yeah. love spooky season. And I would say that this is one of the more haunting. Like this felt like a very yeah. Haunting book. No, like there was such a good like eeriness to it. But yeah. it was still so, like, lighthearted and digestible without, like, I like when things are spooky, they're, but they're not going to give me nightmares. And that's mm-hmm. what I really enjoyed about this book. Like, lots of parts were chilling and edge of my seating, but they weren't yeah. going to completely ruin my day, you know? <laughs> yeah. I I will say, I feel like this one gave me a, a few... I got scared sometimes at night. Um, Sometimes I was like, what the frick is going on? But I I was never scared at night, but I also read this like broad daylight all the time. I never really read this at night. So maybe that was my, that was my, 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 my pro. I read most of this on a plane and I think it was like the white noise energy. The whooshing of the plane while you were reading this, I think would be terrifying. Yeah. It's like you're in a sensory deprivation tank. And then I was also reading this and then I like landed at night at midnight and I was like, time to go to bed, which was hard. But a lot of alluding to the book, essentially A Study in Drowning by Ava Reed. I think it is their second book. They recently- It's their third book. Their third. Wow. Good for them. They wrote The Wolf and the Woodsman and Juniper and Thorn, if you are familiar with that. But A Study in Drowning. Oh, and this is their first YA book, which is so cool. That's great. It it was a wonderful book. It follows the story of a young architecture student um, and a scholar, sort of enemies to lovers. Should we just dive in, Meg? Should we not just get ahead of ourselves? Should we just dive in? Yeah, sure. Yeah, we can, we can, can dive right in. Do you want to do synop- Do you want to do quick synopsis and then big synopsis? What do you feel? Oh yeah, so essentially, it's just it's just a woman who is an architecture, and she goes to a haunted mansion, kind of. Kind but of. But Eddie Murphy is not there, which is an interesting <laughs> fan fiction idea for this series. <laughs> if you okay, into let's Eddie dive Murphy, in. Yeah. So we have our because because also we should say we're interviewing the author this episode, so we have oh, to get yes. through our book discussion quickly so we can get to the real tea with Ava. Mm-hmm. Um, so first, let's talk about this Effie Sater. She is our uh, main protagonist. She's an architect student. She is like the only girl student at the architecture school she doesn't really like architecture she really wants to study literature but she's not allowed there's um this book is set in like a a time period where women are clearly less than males um and she ends up designing a poster and winning a concert uh (laughs) winning a concert winning a contest uh to design high manor 
which is like the old mansion of one of her favorite authors, uh, Mirden. So she's going to get shipped off to go basically redesign his mansion for his um, widow and his son. Yes. So she is headed to the Southern region. Um, She is a Northern girl, which it seems like there is a bit of difference there in the Mm -hmm. fact that like the Southern region is very spiritual. She heads to Saltney, which is a part of the bottom hundred in the Bay of Nine Bells. Yes. It's kind of a weird, eerie place. Um, like known for its magical it's realm spooky yeah it is it's he is not in the city anymore <laughs> and when she gets there the person who's supposed to pick her up isn't there she gets stressed she calls her mom we learn that her mom's necessarily not the most comforting person no. and on the way up to this cliffside manor she sees something in the dark that she describes as the fairy king who is the protagonist of the book that uh, Mirden had written that she is obsessed with and he vanishes in a flash. So she yeah. is like on edge about yeah. this architect project. Uh, and we also know that Effie uh, does suffer from mental illness and has to take, uh, I think pink pills during the day. If she's feeling too like anxious or stressed and blue pills at night um, to help her fall asleep. So she doesn't have nightmares about the fairy King. Um, the next morning, a boy wakes her up He's about her age. His name is Preston. And um, he leads her from her guest house to the main house. And he also saves her from falling down a cliff because I don't think there's enough words for us to describe that this like house is on like a cliff in all senses of the word and all extreme senses of that word. And this cliff is, like, the whole place is susceptible to being a part of the second drowning. The first drowning completely wiped out the southern region. And that's an added element that is really stressful. But her and Preston don't necessarily hit it off. She figures out very quickly that he is the person who checked out all of these books on Mirrodin. And she was a little bit mad about that because she wanted to read them. So... She starts off not necessarily liking him. Yeah, because his whole thing is he's there to basically write a thesis about Mirrodin's life, but he's such a by the the books and by the facts guy. So he's not even reading these books for fun. He's reading them to like write about them and write theory on them and rhetoric. And she is not about that life. Yeah, her job there seems a lot harder than his because as Ianto, the son of Mirrodin, is showing her around the house, it is in horrid condition. Like, I'm surprised as we were going through this house that it was still standing. The basement is submerged in water. I don't get that. How? Like, like, like how? And that's what I think I love most about the this book, that there's these fantastical details that seem so out of this world, but just exist in truth in this book. And that we have no choice but to be like, yep, this is the reality. This basement is basically a um, below ground swimming pool uh, mm-hmm. through no fault of its own. <laughs> so she is like, I don't know if I can do it. I need to walk back to town. I need to call my mom. She is in this space where she's like, I don't even know if I can go back to school. Like I, her um, advisor had like, it's implied that he assaulted her and she mm-hmm. just doesn't really want that reputation because there is one going around, not of her own volition at school, which really sucks. Yeah. So she's walking and Preston sees her and is like, I like to work at the bar anyway, so I will pick you up and go. And along the way, she runs into a guy who gives her a stone to keep 
watch out for the fairy king if she ever yeah runs into and this and it's this man who is herding like a bunch of sheep or goats i forget exactly which one it was mm-hmm. um and she's obviously a little put off by this, I imagine, because it, it's a little weird to have somebody with a bunch of animals just approach you and just hand you a bunch of rocks and be like, hey, this will help you in the event that the fairy king comes. Uh, but she's going to pocket those like we all would, because it is very important to protect yourself from the fairy king. Um, yeah. yeah. And we don't know <laughs> if like Ianto, anything about him yet really is bad, but he gives off bad vibes the next day because he's showing mm-hmm. her around. He's showing her the floor plans. This house is busted, buddy. And when he lays his hands on her shoulders, she just feels like a really uncomfortable weight. Yeah. She wants to tell Preston. She goes to this room to tell him she doesn't. And he she notices that he is working on a thesis, essentially discrediting Mirden for not being the author of his own work. And Effie is mad because, like, Effie loves Mirden. Like, it is her favorite, favorite author. Mm-hmm. Um, and Preston essentially asks Effie to help her because she clearly cares so much about his works. And he does need someone to kind of counterbalance all of his, you know, harsh criticisms with the actual person who enjoys his books and has like the kind of writer creativity side to his very um scientific way of writing so the get is if he if she decides to co-author this with him she will get co-authoring credit something completely unheard of like we said for women they don't get to get into literature school and then maybe she can also lobby it as her ticket into the lit school which is great Something interesting that she finds while she is snooping around all of his notes is that he's written her name a bunch of times in the margins and she's she doesn't say anything, but she's definitely thinking about that. Don't know why he didn't think through that one. Cause like I snoop. I feel like anyone right? would like, snoop. Buddy, this house is Especially falling apart. Gosh. It is going to be so easy to get into that study to find what is going on in there, you know? Come on, Preston, use your brain. So they decide their their idea walking away from this is that she is going to get the blueprints to the house to see if there is mm-hmm. any discrepancies, anything missing, anything she should know about. So yes. she goes to Ianto the next day and Ianto is like, you know what? Let's carry this conversation on at the bar. And at the bar, he is laying it on thick, being weird, saying she's cute, gives yeah. her the blueprints and then is like, we need to go. He's angry all of a sudden. Yeah, he is being creepo McDeepo. We do not like his vibe here. It is bad and, and it turns really scary because he starts like speeding up this cliff and uh, he starts talking about like things like not all girls are grateful for chivalry and he's being very, very intense. And in this moment, she sees Inianto the fairy king and she hurls herself out of this car and ends up walking home after the fact and Preston ends up finding her being like, what? What happened? Ianto locked himself in his bedroom. Why are you bleeding? It's a night to remember. Preston's yeah. cleaning up her sores that are bleeding on the on the carpet now. They notice in the blueprints that there is something weird about Ianto's room. There is uh, empty space in the floor plans that wasn't accounted for. That's kind of yeah. behind a wall. So they are going to check that out. But on the way back to her room, she notices a ghost that looks like a woman in a white dress, and she's like, "I gotta take my pills. Gotta remember." Yeah, and Effie's also pills. like, "Also, maybe something's very wrong with Highrith Manor. Maybe, 
Maybe. Uh, next morning, she's like, I'm on it. She takes two of her pills. She runs to the manor. Uh, and Preston gives her his coffee because he's a good guy. Um, and they decide to go investigate this whole uh, mysterious closet while Ianto's at church. And it's 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 very, like on edge i didn't realize how like nerve-wracking i was gonna feel as they were going through this because they're like he's only gonna be away for an hour and we have to get into yeah, this closet that's not that much um, time yeah and they end up finding a like chained up box in there and mm-hmm. effie no chill just hurls it at the wall to get it open that was really and, funny <laughs> and preston's like what are you doing and it works though so it gets open and they find a journal and some sexy photographs in there uh and so they're like Whoa, 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 whoa. This wasn't whoa. what we were expecting. Pretty sure it was also a blonde girl with green eyes, like the protagonist. Maggie, and- are you Maggie, <laughs> are you saying you want to be this the girl in the photos? Depends on how hot she looks in the photos, because it could be me. I don't know. <laughs> so they find these photos, they find the diary, and the diary kind of details encounters that Mirden had with one woman who seemed to be like the protagonist, the basis for the character in Angard. They do see a fellow poet's name, Colin Blackmar, and they're like, maybe that's our next step is reaching out to this friend. Maybe Mm -hmm. he authored it. So that is their idea is their next plan is going to him to see what's up. Not, not, not before this happens, because they're obviously looking over this in the study and Ianto shows up holding a fucking gun, which was insane. That was terrifying. And yeah. he is mad that Preston and Effie are getting closer and he's being very creepy. And he's like, I wouldn't want either of you exploiting my generosity. Mm-hmm. And we're like, whoa, 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 buddy, put the gun down. Yeah. Um, and then so they Effie- need a game plan. Yeah. So they need a game plan. Uh, next day they're both a little jumpy and they end up convincing um, Ianto to let both of them go on like a trip to the library to get a book even though they're going to go visit Blackmar instead yes so the whole idea of this is Effie is going to be going to the library Preston is going to be going to Blackmar's they get in the car they they lied they lied to their elders they're going together and they go to stay with Blackmar for a bit so they can study Angathard. Angard? Angard. Ang- Ang- um, I, yeah, I read it as like Angard or Angarad. It's the it's his most famous uh, works that it's Effie's favorite book, if we haven't said that. Yeah. And when they get there, they try to um, kind of crack Blackmar up, but he won't open. He is closed yeah. off about talking about his daughter who is the woman that they think was in the photos and um, the book, but his publisher is going to be there tomorrow. So they're like, maybe we can ask him. Yeah. And they're going to stay at his house, which is super nice of him to let them stay there. Um, Effie finds a scroll under the bed in the guest room she is staying at. Preston has to wear like all of Blackmar's clothes while they're staying there. And it always ends up being too short, which is very, very funny. But Mm -hmm. Effie thinks it's kind of sexy. So... Effie does. And on top of this, Preston had to sleep in her bed platonically the night before because she forgot her pink pills. So she can't go to sleep throughout the night. Sounds like these enemies are getting a little bit closer, if you know what I mean. They have to speed away from the ball the next day. The publisher in asking and answering their questions doesn't really give them anything. They figure out he's the son of the original publisher. 
Yeah. So they're like, all right, we're walking away from this with the understanding that at least Mirden was in correspondence with Blackmar's daughter from the letters that we found under her bed. Yeah. And this is where Effie really has this moment of like realizing that like her hero is not who she thought he was. Um, and, and Preston pulls over and they talk about their, um, you know, kind Tell of heroes failing them. And we learn a lot about Preston's uh, dad who died from a traumatic brain injury that he got in a car wreck. Um, and yeah, it was like his it, brain was slowly yeah, flooding. Yeah. And so it's, it's this really like a good moment where they think they both are very vulnerable with each other and they get a lot closer together. Um, I really wanted them to kind of kiss in this moment, but I guess it's kind of weird to like want people to kiss over sharing their trauma. So I get why it didn't happen, but I was rooting for them so much. Because is this Um, when Effie opens up about her mom too? That was earlier. Oh, that was earlier. Okay. Yeah, but that's okay. Read the book and get get there. It's it's great. We're only giving you the highlights. We're only giving you Um, the highlights. So they get back. They figured out they need to get the documents from the basement. And Preston is like, it's flooded. Um, and as we know, flooding stresses him out. Um, Yeah, and there's also a a big storm coming, so it's gonna like flood even harder. Yes, they have a heated moment where Effie kind of like sits on Preston and indicates that they are gonna hook up, but he is like, "Listen, I I know about you and your advisor, and I don't want to take advantage of you in that way." Yeah, yeah. He but he does indicate he's like, "I want, I want to, but I don't want you to think that I'm taking advantage of you, and I want to do this in like a, a a good way." Yeah, we love we love a consensual king. We love it. Love when consensual king, and also when there's literally no time because they have to get the documents. They there's in no time days, for awkwardness. They have two days to get out. They don't have time to hook up right now because exactly. it is starting to rain. Effie is walking to the house. She sees the fairy king and she runs, uh, and she finds Ianto shaking down the tree, uh, staking down the trees. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I because like otherwise they'll fall on the infrastructure of the house. And she ends up kind of uh, helping him get his jacket so she can steal the key to the basement uh, and go for a swim down there. She ends up getting it. uh, And they basically both are like, it's now or never. We have to get these blueprints and get everything from the basement and run because we cannot come back here. This house is not going to survive this storm. Yes, because when she dived into the basement, she found a box that said Angard on it, which we assume is the original book. So after she has dived, she is really cold. They go to the guest house. Um, she wants Preston to stay. They have sex. We know it's Yeah, they do. There. Yeah, but they, they do. They've overslept. They've overslept. They really got to go. Um, uh, that I, I was so happy for them. But then it was like, y'all are on a timeline. Um, and it's it's storm time. Effie is awoken. She says, the storm is here. We got to go. And the winds are winding. And they need to get up to the house and get the letters and the pictures. But the house is in awful shape the the staking of the trees did nothing to protect the house because it is creaking and tilting and whooshing and rushing all inside of these elements and is waiting for them once again with his gun and we love that gun we gotta put the gun away buddy it's not a good look we gotta second amendment can we gotta we gotta you know kill your idols kill the second amendment so kill your idol the gun 
Um, he's sitting there with his gun. He is like, you guys have taken advantage of my kindness. You know what? If the house is going to survive, it needs the sacrifice of a fatherless child. And that's you, Preston. So let's go, buddy. So he shackles him to the basement wall as it's flooding and just kind of leaves him there. And then Effie hits her head and knocks herself out. Literally just like madman city. Because not only did they just walk into this guy's house who's holding a gun, but he's like, by the way, I'm going to chain you into the basement that's going to flood. And that's going to save my house. Um, I've had worse Mondays. (laughs) Haven't we all, folks? Um, But not looking good because obviously Preston's going to die down there. Uh, And Yanto, like Maggie said, has smashed Effie's head into the wall. And he's like, no, 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 Effie, I'm not going to kill you. Uh, And now in this moment, the house is slanting towards the sea. So this isn't good for everything. And And he, in his madman moment, is going to say, no, 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 Effie, while your boyfriend is dying... You have to finish the blueprints for the house, and you we are a going deadline. to be Turn your here homework with in. Me. Yeah, and yeah. Ugh. he becomes completely the fairy king. He's completely taken ta- the fairy king. Ianto is basically gone. Fairy king is taken over, and um, it's revealed that like she was essentially uh left to die by her mom. The fairy king took her finger, mm-hmm. her wedding her ring finger, um, so she could have no other guys. So no time for precedent. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and in the falling of the house, the chandelier kind of shatters, and yeah. when she kneels to him, because she's like, "Sure, I'll I'll kneel to you." She grabs a piece of broken glass and reflects his image back to himself, which it is alluded throughout the book that the fairy king does not want to see his image. And he kind of like melts. Um, Yeah, he like, yeah, he like melts into a man and then turns to dust. The imagery of here of it is so, so cool. Uh, But we do not have time. Effie does not have time to think about how cool the imagery was of slaying the fairy king (laughs) because her boyfriend is once again drowning in the basement. Um, And Preston is still alive, but the water is rushing and gushing. It is hard to get those chains out of the wall. She does consider leaving him, which I do not love. But then she decides, I'm going to try one more time. And then someone's helping her get the chain off of the wall. She thinks it's the ghost from earlier, but no, it turns out to be Angathard, the woman of the story. (laughs) Yeah, and it turns out it wasn't actually a ghost. It was Mirrodin's widow, who is an old woman. Uh, who's just a really old woman which like ouch <laughs> effie ouch. that was mean that was like mean so- but we'll allow it it's like um, when someone because- guesses your age and it's so old that you're just a ghost <laughs> <laughs> how, what, what, how old are you specter um, <laughs> or <Infinity>. phantom <laughs> So they steal away all of them to the guest house. They're very tired. Angard uh, tells her story, which kind of boils down to she wrote the book and and Mirrodin took it. Her dad and him had a bit of a deal, which was her dad kind of felt disgraced by her and was like, okay, you can publish the book and also have my daughter. I just kind of want her out of my house. Yeah, like like he was so disgraced that she would be bedded before marriage or whatever during this affair that he basically like gave her to Mirrodin. And they signed a deal that basically Mirrodin would take her book and then her dad would get all of the profits from it, which is like such a low blow. And we also learn that Mirrodin, she didn't realize this when she was young, had the fairy king inside him all along. Like he, fairy king used Mirrodin as a vessel. And as they aged, it took him over more and more and more. And then once he passed away, the fairy king needed a new vessel. So it basically infiltrated her son. So she's had like 
a really, really rough past couple of decades is what I'm hearing. She's lost um, two boys to Tinkerbell. Kind of sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Not a big fan of that. Um, but they basically open the box. They're kind of bummed because they lost all like the letters in the house. But everything in the box is not like a manuscript of the book. It's more letters. It's her diary and other things that prove that she actually wrote the book. So their thesis is going to be solid piping hot. Piping it's be hot. And it seems that Angard is also going to come clean. And, and she's like, you know what? What's bad press to a year, a life of being locked up in this, this shitty manner? Yeah. So she doesn't really care. She's going to come clean. They go back to college together. Um, Preston earlier on promised Effie that he will take care of her, which was very sweet. Very and sweet. I like I like them. They kind of argue with the dean um, on the fact that she is going to take partial credit. She's going to co-author this. She's also going to be the first woman in the literature school. And also she's like, you know what? Get my mentor fired. He assaulted yeah. me. Get it, Effie. I was so glad that she was like, no, no, no. We do not let men get away with their shitty behavior. Loved it. So it wraps up on Preston meets her friends at a party they throw for her. Everything's kind of going back to normal. And throughout the book, Preston admits that he does not really believe in the supernatural. But he does mention that he could hear bells ringing his whole time being in the bottom hundred, which alludes to the Bay of Nine Bells, which are the churches that drowned. Yeah. In the first drowning. Yeah. So kind of feels like Preston's coming around to a little bit of magic. And I guess the magic is that women get equal rights. And the magic was also that everybody should read this book because it was a fun read. It was, oh my God, this was such a great read. I hope that it gets all of the accolades, all of its flowers when it I comes out in September. I cannot wait. And I also can't wait because it wouldn't be a Maggie and Laura Yaoi Reddit episode if we didn't do our top five. Um, Absolutely. And for our top five, since this is such a supernatural, such a, a wonderfully fleshed out world, we are going to do the top five. It's a wonderfully fleshed out world and we're just going to put <laughs> so our gonna, little spin and on we are gonna, We're going to flesh it out more with the top five creatures that we think also live in this world. <laughs> it's per- Yep, exactly. This is other creatures we would like to exist in this fantasy world that Ava Reed spent so much time <laughs> lovingly creating and Maggie and I just want to have some fun now <laughs> so uh coming in at number five we are believing that werewolves yeah. live in this world let's start off I easy mean, werewolves i mean fairy king was like was like slicked back hairy werewolves yeah. are also slicked back hairy something that's else is a twofer we've got goblins and ghouls They're that's gotta there. be very present in this environment i also love to think that they all wear clogs <laughs> yeah i think so yeah. i think they wear the wooden shoes that curl yeah up the toes. <laughs> exactly they wear wooden clogs and they dance They're they like dance keep- at night so a little bit keebler elf a little bit goblin and ghoul. yeah but less cookies and more dancing <laughs> coming in at number three laura proposed this and it seems like since there's gonna be another flooding it's his world and we're just living in it number three the loch ness monster wow that is so deep it's just his world and we're living in it snaps for that that was like a slam poem in my in my little eardrum <laughs> number two um maggie said this one is a joke and i said no 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 we're gonna put that in there x-men crossover yep what's a little fantasy without a little sci-fi <laughs> 
They're very close. A little Venn diagram, if you will. A little collab. We love a collab central city. Get some get some Wolverine. Get some Storm. Exactly. Get some Professor X. Those are, I think, are the only three X-Men I can name off the top of my head right now. I know Magneto's also in there. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. That's another one. guy, too. And number one, um, we both kind of ping pong back and forth <laughs> on this brilliant idea. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we want to, we would love that glow in the dark nuns. <laughs> and you might be wondering, wait, 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 Maggie and Laura, glow in the dark nuns, how does that fit into fantasy lore? And we argue that fantasy lore can be whatever you want it to be. And we also said that maybe these man, uh, these nuns are magical. Or maybe they just carry around magic eight balls. And that is up to the reader to decide. The beautiful thing about nuns is they could be everywhere and everything. And most of all, that they glow in the dark and that they are nuns. And that is going to be our wrap up for A Study in Drowning by Ava Reed. Um, Stick with us as we have our interview with Ava up next. All right. And uh, previously on this episode, you listened to us talk about A Study in Drowning uh, as a whole book synopsis. And now we're going to talk about it with the author of that book, Ava Reed. Ava, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Very excited to be here. Yeah, well, we're excited to have you. Thank you. Uh, Like we probably mentioned earlier, Study in Drowning was um really good really fast read um different than a lot of young adult novels yeah. we read um in i feel like how fluent and very prosy it was <laughs> yeah 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 like i think That's we've read supernatural books in the past um but this one blew a lot of them out of the water i will yeah. say yeah thank you yeah. no pun intended because <laughs> of all the water in the book <laughs> the unintentional pun <laughs> um so i guess before we get deeper and deeper and deeper into all of the questions that we have just uh about the book in general i want to start talking about you as a writer so i want to start talking about how did the idea for a study in drowning come about yeah so it actually started in kind of an obscure place um which is the shakespeare authorship question um it's kind of this it's referred to as anti-Stratfordian theory, and it's kind of like a group of different theories that basically believe that Shakespeare was not the author of the works that are attributed to him, and maybe he didn't even exist at all, and different theories propose different alternative authors. Um, and obviously, this is pretty much completely discredited today, but historically, like it was actually taken very seriously by a lot of mm-hmm. you know historians and public intellectuals, and people were really like dedicated to this idea to the point where like they would dig up graves to like try and look for clues like it was this big mystery they created like cipher machines to like go through his work um to try and see if there's like some secret code to the author's true identity so I was I just became so interested in like that question of authorship and like what Mm -hmm. would it mean if we found out that an author as important as Shakespeare was not actually like did not actually write his works and maybe wasn't even a real person like that would be kind of devastating in a lot of ways I mean it would certainly be devastating to like all the scholars of Shakespeare um but I think like his cultural impact is so enormous that it would have I don't know it would it would do a lot 
it would change a lot about society and particularly like kind of Western identity because he's so wrapped up in like, you know, Western literature, Western culture. Um, sorry, that was very long winded, but <laughs> that was kind of where like yeah, the yeah. idea came from was like taking apart, you know, and grappling with the idea of like what happens when a famous author is not <laughs> the author. Yeah. Yeah. Exposed as fraud. <laughs> no, that's a, that's such a cool, like, obviously I've heard about that, like Shakespeare, uh, like theory before. So knowing that it just came from that and that um, little like tidbit of, of conspiracy kind of inspired this whole book is so, so cool. <laughs> yeah. And also I think that that's like, obviously a common theme in a study in drowning, I would argue is that like, a little bit of that like kill your idols mm -hmm. idea where Effie is kind mm -hmm. of reconciling with um one of her favorite authors not having like um a work of art like be kind of like you know I don't want to like ruin it mm -hmm. but um accurate or like truthful to them um mm -hmm. and I think that that's like really prevalent today in society of like separating the art from the artist so I'm kind of curious like what your thoughts are in terms of like separating art from artist and like how you apply that logic to life it's a really difficult question because I think there are so many issues just wrapped up in that question today because mm -hmm. more so than ever I think authors are expected to be personally connected to our work and to put a lot of emphasis on our identity and to really tie that to our work. And the reason for that is just because it's good for promotion. You know, publishers encourage that um, on our end and mm -hmm. readers also enjoy that on their end. And like, I'm not immune to that. You know, I'm like, <laughs> you know, buying stuff from Otessa Moshbeck's Depop shop so I can get a handwritten <laughs> note from her. Like I, <laughs> yeah. like as a person, I'm not immune to that. The appeal of like kind of having that intimacy with your favorite author at all. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing. I think that it's it's a complicated question. And I'm still personally trying to figure out like my boundaries as an author and my identity as an author and how that's different from my <laughs> identity as a person. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, my kind of personal opinion on, you know, the value of like the author's voice within fiction and kind of like the validity of a piece of work dependent upon the author's identity is just that I think fiction, all art kind of exists to provoke interesting questions and strong emotions. And as long as a piece of art is doing that, I think that it's, it's successful to me. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. No, that's, uh, yeah, I totally agree. Mm -hmm. um, so going back to your entire um, list of, list of books, I was uh, a little bit on your website as I was prepping for this <laughs> interview. Terrible website. <laughs> <laughs> I I enjoyed it. Listen, websites uh, are hard to maintain. Yeah, <laughs> um, but I know you have two other novels, mm -hmm. and it said a study in drowning was your a YA mm -hmm. debut. So I guess I wanted to hear about more of how you got into the direction of young adult fiction versus um, I guess, I guess what brought, brought you here. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting. I had my two adult books, which were part of one contract with Harper Voyager, mm -hmm. which is the adult SFF imprint of Harper Collins. And then 
now a study in drowning is with Harper Teen, which is obviously the YA imprint of Harper Collins. Um, and part of the reason why I wrote it is because as YA is because like I had this book idea, but I couldn't write it as an adult novel because I had my other contract that was like <laughs> preventing me from writing something else at that point. Um, mm-hmm. But I also was very interested in just thinking about like the difference between YA and adult fiction, because I think more and more the edges are, are kind of blurring and it's the distinction is maybe becoming less and less clear, I think in large part because of social media and like book talk. Um, so it was really interesting to think about, okay, like why should this book be YA as opposed to just adult, like my previous two books. Um, and I was thinking about like, you know, from a different to attack that question from a different angle is like, what can I do with like YA that I like maybe can't do with adult? Like what are the interesting questions that are going to be, you know, salient for a teenage audience that are maybe not going to be as salient for an adult audience. And kind of looking back at my experiences as a teenager, which aren't really that long ago, but it's always kind of like cringe to look back at yourself with the <laughs> curse slash benefit of hindsight. Um <laughs> All that yeah. to say, it was it was kind of, I guess a lot of factors went into it, but I, I've always wanted to write both YA and adult. Um, yeah. Hmm. It's really interesting, too, yeah. that you said that, um, like, YA and fiction, especially with book talk, is becoming, um, like, a bit blended, like, the lines aren't nearly as blurred. I'm not sure why. I feel like, at least when Laura and I were younger, born in the 90s like reading and young adult was like so big for us because mm-hmm. I think it's kind of all we had and now they have that added element of social media mm-hmm. um and I'm I'm pretty sure I've looked up and you're I think you're pretty big on book talk I've watched a few <laughs> of your TikToks um so I'm curious like how that intersection of um kids on social media and how that blurring of lines for like young adult fiction maybe how you think it's like impacting readers or like how you've had to like shift in a market that really values social media in terms of plus writing, you know? Yeah. So on the first point, I think that the main thing that I've noticed is just the fact, you know, when I was younger, it was social media wasn't as prevalent or at least it wasn't like such a big Mm -hmm. part of like book buying culture. Um, So I wasn't getting, you know, necessarily access to like seeing these titles and seeing these books, you know, just easily on my phone. So, you know, when I'd walk into the bookstore, which was how I learned about all the books I wanted to read, I would just go, you know, to the YA section because I'm like, oh, I'm a YA, so I'm going to go over there. Um, And now, Mm -hmm. you know, teenagers are just, you know, scrolling their book talk feed and they're going to see, you know, adult books, they're going to see YA books, and it's not like it's not going to be segregated in the same way. So if a book appeals to them, I think there's very few teenagers that are just going to be like, well, I'm a teenager, so I'm not going to read that. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I think that it's it's changed in that sense. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't think that, unfortunately, parents really have the ability to uh, stop their teenagers from reading what they want to yeah. read, um, for better or for worse. Um, mm-hmm. And as far as social media as an author... Um, it's unfortunately kind of necessary in this day and age, um, even as a traditionally published author. Um, 
that's yeah um and i think a lot of it it ties back to this question of like authorship and identity because being on social media as an author means that you are inherently personally connected mm-hmm. to all of your work you know yeah yeah there's no there's no question you know about who i am and like you know everyone who is reading my books like is seeing my face they've heard my voice it's mm-hmm. you know it seems like very intuitive now but like that wasn't always the case for authors um so i think that it it creates much more of that expectation that people that readers are going to be able to contact authors directly like that was not a thing when I was <laughs> growing yeah, up. Yeah. And now I'm like <laughs> reading these DMs of people contacting me directly every single day, again, for better or for worse. Um, yeah. I think it's yeah. becoming almost yeah. impossible to just separate the work from the author just because of the way that uh, social media has developed. Yeah, I know definitely. it's so wild. Like walking into Barnes and Noble now, do you ever see the section that's like recommended by TikTok? Mm-hmm for you I'll always see those roped off in bookstores and I'm like interesting what a world we live in (laughs) (laughs) definitely um and something I want to hear more about is uh it seems like a lot of your books deal with some sort of fantasy mythological gothic element so I want to hear more about what inspires you most about that type of uh or types of genres Mm mm-hmm yeah so I mean fantasy was like always my first love I always talk about and I think like my zillennial friends also who are authors like also relate to this or like we grew up on the warriors books by Aaron Hunter which are those books about like cats in like clans anyway it's like this amazing middle grade series that's like watership down but with cats um (laughs) a lot of my friends like my age who are authors now are also obsessed with it um so ever since, you know, I was writing my Warrior Cats fan fiction when I was like 11 years old. And then gothic fiction, again, I I don't even remember what kind of, I think it was when I had to read We've Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson. I think it was like mm. eighth grade maybe or like freshman year of high school English. Um mm. And I love that book so much. And I especially love um, the protagonist and like her voice and how incredibly mm. kind of intimate the world and the stakes are. And I got really attracted to that idea of like having a world that feels like a character in and of itself. Having, yeah. you know, you usually hear the word like expansive in fiction like it's a good thing and I'm like but what if a book was actually claustrophobic and like that was just as cool um yeah yeah I going off the off of Shirley Jackson because I think that she is a phenomenal author in picking um sensory details that really immerse you in the world and that is what with this book I was just so impressed by was the fact that like you have you know it's named a study in drowning and then all of your sensory details and like your descriptions, you illustrated words in a way that almost felt as if you were like swimming or like drowning in water, I would say. And I was wondering if like you had the thesis of your book first and then the wording was kind of intentional in creating that feeling that you were like making prose that was as fluid as water. 
Yeah, that's actually exactly what my process is. Um, I'm like mm. a very much a thematic writer. So like the theme of my book oh. always comes first, like the why as opposed to the what. Um, and that makes it very like intuitive to write because I kind of always have that mm. theme in mind. So down to like you said, like even just word choice in a single sentence, I'm always mm. kind of referring back to that central theme in my mind, like you know, the kind of like on the ground decisions you make about like how a character is going to act in a certain scene. Like, it's very easy for me to write that quite intuitively because I've internalized that theme. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What drew you to water specifically is like a motif? Oh my gosh. Well, I live in California now. I'm from New York. Um, (laughs) But now I live in California. And, you know, I went through Hurricane Sandy when I was living back home and but I think in in California you're kind of forced more than where I grew up to like confront like climate change um Mm. in a very very major way um and I just this past year and the past few years that I've lived here it's just it's been very much at the forefront of my mind. And obviously, you know, that theme is is significant in a study in drowning as well. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. Kind of the forces of just the forces of nature and their kind of reaction to, you know, mm-hmm. human yeah. interference. Um, I think it's impossible, honestly, to <laughs> to live in this part of the country and to not have, you know, kind of... yeah very intimate experience of like climate change and just seeing it progress year after year yeah for sure yeah definitely um Mm. off of that so i know we talked a lot about you know the the kind of feeling of water throughout and there's so much else in this book there's an entire romance and there's a lot of lore and there's an entire mystery that they're solving throughout so i want to hear more about the writing process as a whole so in a book that is just so rich with details and uh, ideas. I want to hear more about where did you start when it came to the plot? Did you start with the mystery? Did you start with the romance? Or did it kind of uh, start as a bunch of smaller ideas that all kind of grew into bigger things as you were writing? Yeah, so usually I have these kind of like smaller thoughts that are like spiraling around in my Mm -hmm. brain and I'm like looking for the way to connect them all and like sometimes I'll start and like then I'm not connecting them in the right way and I need that kind of one piece to link Mm. everything together and um like I mentioned it started with this idea of the Shakespeare authorship Mm -hmm. question and at first I wanted to write just a contemporary like dark academia book about that and about kind of college students grappling with that question but then the more and more I thought about it I was like I don't want people to come with like their own preconceived notions of Shakespeare because I wanted to be able to like kind of build um like build my own kind of author so people could see maybe more starkly um what these questions Mm -hmm. were as opposed to coming to it like knowing Shakespeare having their own personal opinions on Shakespeare um so I was like okay I need to create a secondary world fantasy and also an entire literary canon for (laughs) a fantasy world (laughs) um which was a lot but it was really fun and that's why I have you know those kind of snippets at the opening of each chapter because I Mm -hmm. kind of wanted to be able to give the readers a little bit of an idea of like what the literary canon of this world is Mm -hmm. like what kind of works Mm. exist what you know what are the people of this universe reading um (laughs) yeah yeah 
Yeah, I I think that combining probably two of my questions, I think that like fantasy, obviously, for it to work as a book requires a lot of world building. And I think with the world that you built, you have like a lot of things that mirror a lot of like either sociopolitical, economic um, issues, uh, gender inequality. And I wonder if you had like any exercises that really helped you in maybe making a world that mirrors our own and if it was really cathartic and like um, almost nice that you could jump into this world that was close to ours but not quite and escape this one for a little bit (laughs) yeah I so I usually setting wise for all my past three books I've always started with kind of a real time and place and then you know Mm -hmm. taken my own liberties from there and obviously the setting of a study and drowning is very much inspired by mid-century England and Wales. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to kind of set it in a time, and this is something I'm just very interested in doing in my books um, in particular. I wanted to set it in a time of kind of like cultural upheaval where like, you know, the roles of women in society were changing like very rapidly. Um, and, you know, there is kind of like this turmoil. Um, obviously, there's also kind of the war in the backdrop because I needed, you know, some way to explain why the roles of women are suddenly changing in society and um, mm-hmm. in the real world that had a lot to do with World War II. Um, so, yeah, mm-hmm. I started with kind of that time period and then I jumped off from there and, you know, brought my own kind of experiences to that. Um, So I went to Barnard College, which is the Women's College of Columbia um, in New York. Mm -hmm. And it is one of the oldest um, women's colleges and one of the few women's colleges that uh, (laughs) remain today. And it was just a very interesting experience going to a women's college that was part of a larger university um, (laughs) because there was very, very much this attitude at Columbia among the other colleges of the university that like, oh, Barnard is like, like Barnard girls are like stupid. Like Barnard girl was like an insult. Like, yeah, there was like this whole kind of running joke that like, oh, Barnard girls are only there for like Columbia students to hook up with. Like this is such a common like (laughs) running thing. Um, I was like, I was dating this like older Columbia guy when I was a freshman and like I got so much like, like his friends were like not they didn't like me very much and um Mm. yeah so I mean obviously you can see how some of that experience was brought to a study in drowning um and I think it's Mm -hmm. obviously in the setting it's 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 magnified because it takes place in you know an allegory for the 1950s where these Mm -hmm. you know sexism was you know maybe even more institutionalized and more in your face Mm -hmm. but yeah it it did come from Mm -hmm. kind of that personal experience Definitely. Um, And I want to talk about Effie and Preston, because I think Preston kind of represents like the the times changing as a part as your male characters (laughs) go. Um, Obviously, he has his own, you know, um, prejudice against him being from a different country. But um, Maggie and I, we love a enemies to lovers um, sort of romance. So I guess I want to hear more if uh, the plan was to have them always wind up together together, or was it going to be maybe they're just friends and they kind of work on this thesis together. No, they were always going to end up together. Um, 
Awesome. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I love the trope of like breaking the skeptic. Um, yeah. And obviously mm. that's yeah. very much yeah. Preston's character arc. Like I love yeah. the, any kind of relationship that forces the characters to kind of like break their own deeply held beliefs and their own preconceived notions about the world. And I think that that's something mm-hmm. that both Effie and Preston have to do over the course of the relationship. And like, that's the most romantic thing like yeah. to me is when you're like, I love you <laughs> so much. I need to reevaluate like my most core beliefs yeah in the world I'm gonna shake up how I think about things oh, yeah <laughs> and yeah. I think that that's awesome and I think that that <laughs> you know that relationship creates so much interesting tension like my favorite scenes to write with mm-hmm. where they're just like having these like esoteric arguments about literature but they're also like expressing so yeah. much about well, who they are as people and like Preston thinks that he's so like rem- removed from emotion and that all his arguments are like only rooted in logic and you know that's kind of yeah. not true because <laughs> nobody is really nobody is really like that everyone brings their own preconceived notions to mm-hmm. yeah and their relationship like obviously works a lot because no matter how at each other's throats occasionally they are I feel like there was always like a deep level of respect and understanding and especially in giving Effie a lot of like space to explore her own feelings or like Mm -hmm. deal with things as they come I think was like really beautiful to see I will say personally how I saw the relationship not sure if you meant it but um sort of an enemies to lovers arc Mm -hmm. Um, which I'm obsessed with. I always love books like that. Um, and especially if it's set in an academic world, like even better. So great. Um, so I was wondering if you drew like any inspiration of like from the enemies to lovers trope, um, when you were kind of recreating that dynamic between them. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I've been pitching this book as like academic rivals to lovers. So that was definitely like my intention with writing their relationship mm-hmm. because again I think that it's I don't know like I love writing these kind of scenes these arguments mm-hmm. between them like these kind of mm-hmm. you know defeat debates um I think they're so interesting um yeah so I'm I'm all there for the enemies to lovers rivals to lovers best trip. <laughs> Awesome. It's, such a, awesome. it's such a fun it's job just so fun it. i'll never i'll never get tired i think of of that you could throw any book or movie in front of me and they're like and there's an enemy lover plot line and i'm like i'm in i'm sold I'm, in. I am, yeah. I'm i'm gonna i'm gonna digest all of this and i'm going to be satiated it's gonna be fantastic yeah yeah <laughs> um I don't think we can fully talk about this book without talking about how a big part of Effie's uh, character and just journey overall is her dealing with and remembering and processing her trauma. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it can definitely be easy for especially YA authors, but definitely just authors in general uh, to use the kind of traumatic events to glamorize things in not great ways. Like, Oh, I'm going to use this to deem a character as crazy, or I'm going to use it as some throwaway plot device. So I, I really, really was so happy to see that in this world where there is a lot of larger than life and fantastical elements that we have this um, kind of trauma as a real, real and relatable piece of Effie as a character. I felt like it was a really great way to ground um, a, a lot of what was happening in a study in, as 
in Drowning. Um, and so this is a very long worded way of me saying that I, I'd love to hear more about your process of writing a character that is dealing with trauma in such a way that does feel like it is handling it with such care um, mm. and such truth. Yeah, I mean, I think that is in some ways is like is just a book about mental illness mm-hmm. and then everything yeah. kind of wrapped around that um yeah in a sense and I think actually the more that I kind of talk about the book and the more that I like write about it like I realize that more and more um Mm -hmm. and kind of bringing my own personal experiences um into that was obviously you know something that helped that helped ground it for me but I've always um you know, and it, it is kind of like the book that I would have loved to have as a teenager when I was going through things that were mm-hmm. very similar to what Effie is going through. Um, I would have loved to, you know, have that sort of protagonist to. Yeah. To. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I did think a lot about how to kind of portray that for a mm-hmm. wide audience because I've written about um, this before in Juniper and Thorn, um, which is my this mm-hmm. book but that is an adult horror novel obviously so you know the intention mm-hmm. with that book is very different you know the kind mm-hmm. of the way that you explore the subject matter can be yeah because it's meant to like obviously evoke horror in people and that's just not yeah. the reaction that I wanted it to evoke in a study in drowning um yeah at all so yeah and I was very lucky to be very encouraged by like my agent my editor to write about stuff like that mm-hmm. still not necessarily like the easiest sell in a mm-hmm. novel um especially yeah. why fantasy like you know most people want that kind of stuff and grounded like contemporary books um yeah not as much in fantasy mm-hmm. but so I, I I wanted to kind of play with the element of like mental illness and trauma almost you know transporting you to your own personal fantasy world because mm-hmm. that is kind of what it feels like sometimes and mm-hmm. that is kind of the main way that Effie copes with her yeah mm. and I had a question that that I just thought of right now um that that brought up so like obviously this book and a lot of your work deals with um like heavier things this one in particular mental health assault and things like that and like mm-hmm. as writers when we're writing like those heavy topics, we're encouraged to take care of ourselves. And sometimes that can be like really hard to do. So I Mm -hmm. wonder, you know, like if as a victim writing it as like things like that, when we put ourselves in that space again, sometimes it can be like so much. Um, So how did you take care of yourself when you were writing about these heavy topics as well? You know, I've, (laughs) it helps that I've had a lot, like a lot of like, professional treatment over the years and it's helped that I have read a lot about like trauma theory so I've gotten to the point where like I can separate myself and you know kind of from what I'm writing about and I can take pieces of my experience and not have it be like okay I'm literally transplanting myself onto the page Um, and I think that that's really helpful and that's really necessary because you know at the end of the day I'm writing fiction I'm not writing a memoir um yeah Mm. I think being able to kind of have that distance and that separation and to 
you know, view your own experiences within a larger context of like, mm-hmm. psych- of psychiatry and trauma theory um, is super, super helpful. You know, I wouldn't have been able mm-hmm. to write this book if I hadn't, you know, been very trauma informed and known a lot about mm-hmm. dissociation, um, you know, mm-hmm. psychosis, the things that Effie deals with in the book. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> It's. I don't think it would have been enough to just write my own like literal experiences mm-hmm. onto the page. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, because I mean, like, I found the way that you kind of peppered those moments throughout of like PTSD um, was just very similar to real life. Like, I mean, I don't know. I feel like the biggest example I can like think of is like like when queer people are coming out, they like always expect it to be like one big thing and it's like the whole idea in our community is like well you know like you come out like over time and things like that um so I was wondering like how you managed to include those moments of like her experiencing triggers or like trauma and things throughout the book without deviating from the whole plot and like Mm -hmm. stealing focus since that is what real life is it's just small Mm -hmm. moments yeah that's really true and I think that in order to do that, it had to be so seamlessly integrated into her character mm-hmm. and into the themes of the mm-hmm. book. So I could know like instinctually, okay, this is the moment where it's going to come out. And, you know, this is the way that it's going to be expressed. Like, and the same way that mm-hmm. you would kind of with any character that you're writing, you would think about it as just as part of them. And, you know, it's not always going to be on the page, on the page, but it's still going to be influencing, you know, the things that they do and how they kind of see the world so just Mm, having this you know interwoven into her character and into the themes of the book was kind of essential and it was always a part of the book you know since its inception yeah definitely um this is going to be um a segue to a, a, a lighter question that I have. <laughs> Let's do it. Down. Bring it back. Bring it back. <laughs> I was like, I was like, Megan and I, we, we, we don't want to end this the podcast on a downer note. I was like, let's all talk about trauma and triggers and everything like that. Let's bring it back. Let's bring it back to fun. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, let's, let's get, we'll, we'll, let's we'll heighten the vibes a little bit. <laughs> okay. Um, one of my favorite visual descriptions in the book was that of the sleeper museums and the mm-hmm. glass coffins and how it's a tourist attraction. I was like, this is so fun <laughs> and so cool. Um, but obviously in the book, that is like their world seven most famous authors um so if this was a real place who would be in your sleeper museum oh my gosh well Shakespeare obviously um yeah he's straightforward that I'm a very big Shakespeare um Mary Shelley I think Um, nice yeah Ovid probably you have to have you know at least you got possible author in there my classicist so I (laughs) that's very necessary um oh my gosh this is like the most difficult question yeah and again you can again I was like seven's a lot you don't have to get to all seven you can just name Um, as many you can even do five (laughs) yeah yeah um I want to say I'm just like looking around the room at the books that I have (laughs) like where's my bookshelf I also like don't want to say anyone alive because that's like kind of spooky like yeah (laughs) that's also valid I did not think about that when I asked that question Um, (laughs) it's funny yeah uh Mervyn Peake 
who wrote Gormenghast. That book is really, has been really influential to me. Um, he also has like the best name ever. I thought it was a pen name, but that's like his real actual name. If I was named Mervyn, I would have no choice but to become an author of gothic fiction. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Like you, you literally, you literally have to. Um, yeah. Who else? I mean, Shirley Jackson also has been hugely, hugely influential to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always like these questions. I feel like every author can relate to this. It's like we love books yeah. so much. All we do is like we think about books, and then someone is like, "So, like, what's your favorite book?" And we're like, "Yeah." yeah. Or it's one of those that, like, tomorrow you're going to be like, oh, I should have said that person. (laughs) Yeah, of course. I have those moments all the time. Like, why wasn't I thinking about that then when when the time came? (laughs) Like when you're in the shower afterwards and you, like, remember the perfect comeback to the argument and you're like, yeah exactly yeah. Like, oh why why wasn't why was my brain not in that moment there <laughs> i mean he gave us a solid five that we yeah could exactly that's run basically with. that's more than enough <laughs> yes. think about you did know, actually <laughs> email us get back to yeah. us yeah um, <laughs> so um i'm wondering like for any aspiring writers to wanting to like write young adult novel wanting to write um fiction or fantasy do you have any like tips or tricks or even exercises for either illustrating and drawing out a world for world building or for like naming characters and places since that's such a huge part of building a fantasy mm-hmm. book? Oh my god, that's it's so funny that you bring that up because my author friends and I constantly talk about how naming things in a fantasy is the worst part of writing. <laughs> Bar none, like that is so true. Like I, there have been ideas for me that like have never gone off the ground just because I couldn't figure out names for it. like, or not even like people, but like naming like fake countries or like fake. Yeah, oh my gosh, that yeah. is the worst. I can imagine. Ever, like. So yeah, for me, I. I'm really into like kind of linguistics and languages and like languages and endangered languages. So that's always something that I like look at when I'm trying to come Mm -hmm. up with names for things. Like I, for a book that I'm working on, I was looking at Lombardic Kings. Um, They have awesome names. I would really recommend (laughs) like looking at the Lombardic language is is fascinating. Um, (laughs) Okay. Cool. That's cool. Studying drowning. There are a lot of Breton names. Not that Breton is a dead language, um, but it is a minority language. Um, Breton names Mm -hmm. are really awesome. Um, Yeah. I really, I wish I had tips because I would use them for myself, but that's like (laughs) part of writing is names for things um but for world building in general I would always say that like kind of one thing that I always think about is the why of the setting like what can this particular setting do for me that another setting couldn't what is this like contributing to the book like why why you know even like on a very basic level like why a city versus you know a village like why (laughs) you know, why is this in kind of like the medieval era as opposed to like the industrial era? Like yeah. What is that providing yeah. the plot to the characters um, that makes it a necessity? Yeah. Because I think that mm-hmm. in fantasy more so than maybe any other genre that the setting is where you can get really wild with ideas and it's really fun. 
Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. That's so cool. Um, and also I feel like um, encouraging to hear that it's like, yeah, naming things is hard. It's not like, it's just like, it's kind of just a bone you have, you know? That's so funny. And um Okay, so we have, we're we're down to our last few questions. So uh, I want to hear because I again on your website um, as I was prepping for this, I know you have a 2024 book, uh, Lady Macbeth, coming out. Uh, but do you have anything else that's in the works? Any planned returns to the YA world? Yes. So nothing officially announced on the YA side, but mm-hmm. there is another YA book coming. Doesn't have a release date yet because we're still in a <laughs> nebulous like pre yeah phase but i will say it is a genre that i've never written before so okay, i'm excited cool. to do that it is kind of a throwback to the you know 2010s ya which is the ya that oh, i grew up fun. with like hunger games yes it yeah very much i wanted it to very much feel like that era so yeah yeah awesome i was a oh. It was like a big name blog and the Hunger Games fandom on Tumblr. Um, That's so cool. So those are like my roots. Um, so I'm like getting back to my roots with that book. Um, oh, what was your it. username on Tumblr? I, I probably followed you. you I refuse to say. Fan. And the reason I refuse to say is okay, because I, <laughs> my big thing was that I was like always standing and defending the career tributes which says so much about me like because I was like child so <laughs> soldiers like they are not complicit but like also they're so morally gray and like complex like I was just obsessed with like their whole characterization and like yeah what they're because we never get very much about yeah. what it would have been like That's to be raised true. in like a career district um so yeah that yeah. was my whole thing and because people were always like <laughs> trying to attack me for like defending murder or whatever um <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. They were conditioned from birth to like be child soldiers. <laughs> they were child soldiers. Like this is a they were. They yeah. literally were. <laughs> That's so funny and also valid. You don't need to tell. You don't need to go on record with with that information. <laughs> yeah, you got us. You got us hooked with 2010s YA. Yeah, we no, were all there. We all lived through it. <laughs> yeah, no, I I can't wait for that. That is uh, so exciting to me. <laughs> That'd be so fun. Um, so I guess wrapping this up, um, last question would be: Where can we keep up with you as an audience on social media or anywhere? Yeah, um, not my terrible website, which is terrible and hasn't been updated in so long. Um, <laughs> but I'm pretty active on Instagram, which is at Ava S Reed, all one word, and I unfortunately also do have a tiktok that i use every so often um which is the same handle over there um but yeah awesome awesome Awesome. well thank you so much ava we loved reading a study in drowning and we love getting to talk to you so thank you for carving out the time to do this with us um and Listeners, you can keep track of Ava everywhere. You just heard Ava say that you can keep track of them. Uh, and you can follow us, uh, Maggie and Laura, on Instagram at Maggie underscore and underscore Laura. And on Twitter, now presently known as X, um, at Y'all We Read It. <laughs> yeah, I guess we got to shout out Elon Musk now, too. Oh. Um <laughs> hate that for us <laughs> and that's gonna be our episode on a study and drowning i guess
Yeah. So, and last so I'm sure. <laughs> I'm not going to wrap up. All right. <laughs> Nailed it. Perfect. Perfect wrap up. Thank you for listening, everyone.